Hi, welcome to The Elephant. I'm Charlotte Lomas. March 8th marks International Women's Day, an annual celebration of the achievements of women all across the globe. And this year's campaign is Be Bold for Change. Now, to discuss climate change and equality, who better to talk to than a woman who herself has been bold for change? Mary Robinson was the first female president of Ireland from 1990 to 1997. She was then the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights from 1997 to 2002. Now she leads the Mary Robinson Foundation, which is devoted to climate justice, and she is also the United Nations Secretary-General's Special Envoy on El Niño and climate change. Mary Robinson, welcome to The Elephant. So how are the impacts of climate change experienced differently around the world, and how do women experience climate change impacts differently? There's no doubt in my mind that it's the most vulnerable countries and communities that suffer most, not only in developing countries, but even uh, in developed countries when struck by weather patterns. We saw that with Katrina and indeed with Hurricane Sandy in the United States. So we see it uh, where uh, it's vulnerable communities that take much longer to recover. But I had the experience in my mandate for El Nino and climate to really see the impacts of climate vulnerable countries already and then the layering on top of that of the severe impacts of El Nino followed by La Nina, the severe exacerbation of drought, the severe flooding. And of course, in those communities, it is women who suffer most because of their traditional roles, because they have to put food on the table, they have to go further for water, and they uh, have to uh, have their families survive at at whatever cost, and it is so much more difficult. Um, I had a particular experience in Honduras in what's called the Dry Corridor of Central America, and I went out about three hours distance from the capital to a poor community, and I was relying on a, women's, a Honduran women's organization to bring women from different villages together. And we met in a central place, under a tree, actually. They put chairs around a big tree for the shade. And I needed the shade because it was about 40 degrees in the sunshine last, at the end of July. And I saw the pain in those women's faces. And one of them said to me, and it was through translation, because I sort of understand Spanish, but needed it translated, she said, we have no water. How do you live without water? And, you know, it was so stark. And I really could see the stress, the pain. And then after they had told me uh, of their problems, they then showed me how they were trying to be more resilient. They have uh, rationed the well water. They had a lock on the well, and it was only open at certain times, and people, women came with their buckets, and therefore the water, they managed to uh, make sure that there was enough, a minimum for every household. And then they showed me how they were growing different vegetables. They were trying to be less dependent on maize, which is a very drought-affected crop. And, you know, it's the resilience which was remarkable. So how is climate change a human rights issue? You know, I came to it late as a human rights issue. I served for five years as High Commissioner for Human Rights and never made a speech about climate change because another part of the UN was dealing with it. And I didn't see the connection. But then I went to New York and and founded a small organization called Realizing Rights, which was going to focus on economic and social rights in African countries, rights to health and women, peace and security and corporate responsibility and even right to food in some countries. 
And everywhere I traveled in Africa, I heard the same refrain. This was from the year 2002 until 2010. Um, and it was all about things are so much worse. And when I probed, it wasn't conflict, but that did come up. It was much more um, the unpredictability of weather now. We don't know when to sow. We don't know when to harvest. We don't know when the rainy seasons will come. They used to be so predictable. Our harvest is destroyed by flooding. Long periods of drought and flash flooding. We never had that before. And I realized that this was the biggest human rights issue facing the world. When I read up the science then and became interested and you know, began to talk about climate justice, it was very much because of the human rights and gender dimensions. So what would an equitable solution for curbing emissions look like? Well, we saw the approach that was, to me, quite a climate justice approach um, in the Paris uh, negotiations because there was procedural fairness as well as a fair outcome in being more ambitious about being well below two degrees and working for 1.5. What we need now is to implement that ambition and uh, for the countries that have built up their economies on fossil fuel, we need to be much more ambitious. The United States, European Union, uh, Korea, Japan, etc. We need to lead the way in being more rapid in, in moving to zero carbon um, and uh, building up renewables, removing the subsidies from fossil fuels, divesting from fossil fuels, and do it much, much more rapidly. We now finally have an international climate agreement, yet President Donald Trump has said he will pull out of the climate accord. Do you see any source of hope for climate action in the current political landscape? Obviously, it's difficult that we have a president of the United States who claims to be not persuaded by climate change, and he's placed people in key positions like the European, the, the Environmental Protection Agency, who are climate deniers and who uh, aren't uh, willing to move forward. But I actually think that the Paris Agreement itself is an international agreement which must be implemented. And I'm glad to say that there are cities and states of the United States who are quite committed to that. Um, the C40 city, cities are committed to um, being uh, car zero carbon by 2050 and working backwards to see how they can go forward. These are big cities in the United States like Chicago, New York, Boston, San Francisco. They're all part of the C40 cities. And um, California, but not just California, um, will be moving forward. Texas is uh, introducing more renewable energy now than oil or gas. So um, I think we are going to see a kind of tug in two directions, um, maybe a, a battle for the hearts and minds in the United States in particular, while the rest of the world clearly is going to move increasingly um, in the direction of renewable energy, in the direction of uh, cutting down on and um, ultimately eliminating fossil fuels. As a former politician yourself, you have an insider's perspective on how politics and politicians work. Do you think there is enough political will to meet our climate targets? I think it will be very important when the IPCC produced their report in 2018 on the 1.5 that we take it very seriously. We can't afford not to because I have seen the impacts on the poorest countries and communities of the current uh, disruptions, the current uh, destroying of, mar of uh, you know, the um, way in which the harvest is destroyed. These people have no insurance, no plan B. So we have to um, be at 
a world of 1.5 degrees, if we're going to have a livable world for a very significant portion of the world's population. And because the developed world doesn't feel the same impacts as acutely yet, uh, we mustn't become complacent. We have to move forward urgently and we have to understand the importance of leaving no one behind in the sustainable development goals. And that means having uh, a climate that is compatible with uh, social good, with, with, with uh, not having terrible displacement of people because of climate and not having uh, much, you know, much more aggravated uh, situations. March 8th marks International Women's Day and this year we've seen women's marches take place all over the globe in solidarity of women's issues. We've seen women's scientists march for science. Looking ahead, what role do you think women can play in achieving climate justice? I think it's very encouraging that we had uh, those wonderful marches which were largely um, led by women and um, uh, with the issues where um, not only women's issues but also climate justice I was glad to see. Um, and we are now seeing more and more of that. Um, I'm going to be very active myself on International Women's Day in uh, Washington and the World Bank and in the evening with a wonderful organization called Vital Voices which would be marking 20 years of women in developing countries. Um, I'll be uh, reminding anybody in, um, you know, in, in, in that context of the importance of women giving leadership on climate issues. My foundation is supporting a troika plus of women leaders on gender and climate in the COP process, if I could put it that way, the UNFCCC process. Um, that is women ministers of environment and energy, uh, women heads of agencies. We've been coming together since the Cancun COP and we now are focusing on the link with women at grassroots, which I very much welcome. So we supported having um, grassroots women included in the uh, re uh, resolution passed in Marrakesh, which will allow for a gender action program to be developed. And we want local and traditional knowledge and grassroots women to be very much involved in how that evolves so that gender is seen as being a key issue in the negotiations and a key issue in implementing going forward, key issue in adaptation, key issue in building resilience. And the role of women as actors for change is absolutely crucial. And on that topic of grassroots movements, where does that leave us ordinary people trying to bring about change when the problem is so complex? It is a very big problem, but actually I think it can be thought about and acted on very locally and by all of us and you know in a very ordinary way we're all consumers let's be careful about what we're consuming let's be careful about um, being uh, more um, uh, you know determined to uh, do what um, uh, you know is, is, is a very simple lesson in life reduce reuse recycle um, we can all mend things rather than throw away, have a throwaway society. We can recycle and have a circular economy, which is what uh, will be the true uh, basis of a renewable energy economy. And uh, we can all start um, and uh, you know, change our habits a bit. But also, I think now, uh, because of the disruption of the Trump election on climate, um, th there is a need for people to get out and march and express their voice. I think this is probably more needed than ever, and it's welcome that it is happening and that young people are becoming engaged. I'm hearing much more discussion about climate because of the fear of a climate disruption politically that is kind of um, reminding us that uh, we can't get there by business as usual. We have to be 
prepared to be more transformative. And that requires thinking and action and uh, involvement of everyone. Mary Robinson, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you.